0: Something about communities is on, I'm good. Yep, Um, that I've missed. You know, there's something about doing it with other people, live and in person, I think is special. And so I've looked forward to this opportunity. I wanna thank you guys again for coming. (laughs) Oops. Um, With that, I I will say, uh, Abe mentioned that we're gonna take a break from the Book of Philippians, excuse me, and we're gonna go into a three-week series these next uh, couple weeks or so. And um, I should say, you know, my tenure at Beloved is coming to an end. Um, but I've been telling people, for me, this isn't goodbye. It's see you later. Right. I've been at this church for my entire adult life, which is crazy to think about. And so whether you guys like it or not, I'm family. And so I will have to come back, you know, for family reunions and things like that. I'm sure, Abe, there'll be a day you're like, I don't want to preach Let's call it a right? Or Eugenia would be like, hey, we don't want to hear you preach. Let's call it Tua. Like, what, what, no matter what it is, I'm sure I will be back. And so uh, this is just a see you later. Um, but I was praying through, you know, what words uh, can I leave with you guys as I prepare to live out this mission I feel like God is calling me to? And uh, I felt moved to go to the words of Jesus and his uh, farewell to his friends and to his disciples. I am not Jesus, needless to say. But all the more reason I thought it would be perfect to leave, him, leave you guys with his words and what he says as he prepared for the cross. And so we're going to go through just a three-week series looking through the book of John through what's called the farewell discourse of our Savior. And it's dense and it's a lot, so we won't go over all of it. But I wanted to highlight a few verses that stuck out to me that we may reflect on for this next season of our church. And so it's always interesting to imagine what was going on in the head of Jesus. But for me, particularly in this scene, he, he knows what's about to happen. He's about to die on the cross. Uh, he's about to go through a lot of suffering and a lot of pain. But his friends, his disciples who are now with him, they have no idea. Like imagine they were eating and drinking like normal. Right? They were just hanging out, enjoying one another's company like they had done so many times before. They, they didn't know and this was one of the last times they were all going to be together. So I can imagine Jesus, right? Like part of him, maybe in his humanity, he wanted to just let the moment happen. Let his disciples be, you know, peace at peace. Let them enjoy uh, this camaraderie that they were experiencing. But I think he knew that the spirit was putting on his heart a word that he had to leave them with. And so he began his farewell to them. He said, I'm about to be glorified. I'm going somewhere where you cannot follow me. As I leave with you a new commandment. Love one another. As I have loved you, Love one another. It's weird he calls it a new commandment. You ever think about that? Why does he call it a new commandment? Do you all remember the Sermon on the Mount where he said, um, you've heard it said before to hate your enemies, but I tell you what? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Do you guys remember the story of when Christ rode on a donkey into Jerusalem? And then the Bible says he goes into a temple and begins to preach. And what does he say there? Love your neighbor as yourself. So he's talked about loving and caring for others before. So why does he say here this is a new commandment? What is new about it? It's not the action of loving, right? What is it? It's the standard by which their love was going to be judged. That's what's new. It's no longer okay just to be kind to your neighbors and pray uh, for your enemies. To be, you know, just uh, as aware of other people's needs as your own. He's saying, no, no, no. Just so we're clear, the standard of love that I'm calling you to is this. It should look like how I Loved you. He's raising the bar. Right? Raising the mark. And Jesus, of course, he loves doing this. Earlier, he talked about how he didn't come to abolish the law in the Old Testament or the First Testament. He came to fulfill the law. To clarify it. Because they didn't actually understand how holy God was. They didn't really get the bar that God was setting. One of my favorite stories is the one where Peter comes to Jesus, and <laughs> he says, uh, "Jesus, how often should we forgive our brother who sins against us?" Y- y'all remember the story, right? It's like, is it, is it seven times, right? And we kind of laugh and make fun of Peter. We don't actually realize that Peter, in this sense, was being generous, because according to Ju- Judaism, you actually only had to forgive somebody. Three times, and then you were good. That was a law. So Peter was trying to throw out a generous number by saying seven. And what did Jesus say? Nah, nah. Seventy times seven. More times than you could count. That is the true standard of forgiveness. And he's doing the same thing here. You guys don't quite understand what I mean when I say Love. So I'm going to make it clear. That's what he's doing. As I have loved you, that's how you're called to love. That's the litmus test. That's the final exam. When you're loving, you should ask the question, did I love like Jesus loved me? What else does he say? It's not just the standard. It's actually how people will be able to identify that you are my disciple. That's what he says, right? That's how people will know. It's funny, we don't often think about um, this being a way that we're marked as Christians. We usually use other things to identify ourselves, but Jesus says this should be the primary identification. I actually watched a basketball game recently, and I don't know if it was miscommunication or what, but both teams were playing in white. And it was one of the most entertaining slash confusing games I had ever watched, right? Because I had no idea. As somebody who was watching, it was not easy for me to quickly identify which player belonged to which team. Jesus is saying there should be a way that when people are watching your life or watching this world, they can quickly identify which people are on my team. There's a jersey that you should put on, and it's one of love. But not not just the action of love, because we often, we get it confused. We think, as Christians, we're just called to love. But his point is, anybody can love. The the world can love. People can reject Christ and reject God, and they can love. It's not just loving, it's loving the way I love. It's a special kind of love that people will see on you and be like, you must follow that Jesus guy. You must really believe in that that man from Nazareth because you're loving, or you're doing things that that, that he was doing. And so if this is the standard, the litmus test for every disciple, then it doesn't just uh, belong to these 11 men in the room. But if you are here today, or if you're watching online and you said, you know, I, I think I also want to follow the teachings and the life of this Jesus of Nazareth, then this standard applies to you as well. If you want to be on a team, this is the jersey. And if you're serious, and, and I say that not facetiously, like if you're you might not be sure, right? To be fair. You could be here, you could be watching, you might not be sure if you want to dedicate your life to this, but if, if you do, then I would say the next question you should be asking then is, well then how did Jesus love? Right? If that's the test, then it would be nice to know, you know, how, what does it look like? How do we practically get there? Right? And I think fortunately he gives us A hint in John 15, which is the same night, part of the farewell discourse in verse 12. This is, once again, the same night to the same disciples, he repeats himself. This is my commandment. And you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this. Someone lay down his life for his friends. So how did Jesus love us? He literally laid down his life for us. His life for our life. We got love. He got death. We gain everything. He gained nothing. Th- that's what he's saying. He is defining his love that this is the requirement. This is the cost. And, and you should consider the cost, Right? The Bible says, before building your home, consider the cost. No player signs for a team without reading the contract first. This is the cost. This is the contract. These are the details of the, of the agreement that you love like Christ, meaning you lay down your life for others. But if you're like me, then you're wondering, well, practically, what does that mean then? Like, are we looking for ways to die, like for other people? Do we jump in front of bullets? Do we jump in front of, like, how does that apply for us today? Because we're not uh, Jesus. I had the same question, and I looked up uh, the phrase, lay down your life in the Greek, and I found that there was another uh, way it was used in the Bible. And it's from a story when Jesus was talking about a light. He says, you don't put a light uh, underneath a basket. Y'all, y'all remember this, that, that passage? You, you don't place it underneath. And that's the same phrase he's actually using here as lay down, to place underneath. And that got me going, Begin to think that maybe there's a way we can love like this where we don't literally die, but we die to ourselves, because we place our life underneath the life of others. And as I was mulling over this. I actually listened to a sermon that I thought gave me a decent illustration of what this could look like or feel like. It was by a pastor who uh, he has a wife and three kids. And he said, you know, for a while we lived right next to the church and everything was good. But then the church moved uh, a couple miles down the road. And suddenly it was very difficult for us to get to church on time. He said that after uh, several weeks or so, he began to give his wife uh, suggestions. While he was preparing and trying to go over the sermon, and his wife was mostly helping the kids get ready, he started to give her some suggestions. Maybe you could get up a little earlier, he said. Maybe you could lay out the kids, you know, clothes beforehand. Maybe you could try to start the shower bath time a little bit, Right, earlier in the day. He said, for some reason, despite his very reasonable suggestions, his wife uh, didn't take him very well. So he tried again. Maybe, you know, I could do this, or I could do that, or you could do this, or you could do that. And she just, for some reason, wasn't responding very well to it. So he said, okay, I'll try a different tactic you could take as much time as you need with the kids. I'll ride with one of the elders or deacons. He said, for some reason, his wife didn't like that suggestion either. And it was funny, right? Hearing him go through this illustration and even ask the crowd, like, what what you have done, right? And of course, all the guys got it wrong in the crowd, right? But he said, it took me forever for it to dawn on me my wife wasn't responding to my reasonable suggestions because she did not feel loved. And she felt like it was more important to me that I went to service on time than I supported her physically and emotionally. And he said, when I thought about it, the service didn't need me to go on time. I mean, I was a pastor, yeah, but, but everything was set up. We, we arranged everything the, the week before. We knew what to do. Like everything would have been okay. But the only reason I wanted to go on time because I had the idol of my reputation and perception. And the pastor should be right. And that's what was holding me back from loving my wife well. He said, I would have, n- I would have never thought to simply say, maybe sometimes we go late to church. And it was fascinating listening to this sermon because I was like, I would have never thought that either. Like, it sounded reasonable, like, lay the clothes out. Of it. But that showed me, oh, my goodness, because I have the same idol he does of perception, right, of wanting to look like I always have it together. And he said there's one thing at the end, and this is what struck me and connected it to the passage. He said, when I finally realized that that was what I should do, and I did it, it felt like death. That's what he said. It literally felt like death. Some of you are laughing, but I actually know exactly what he means. And the hard part is, I don't often love in a way that feels like death. When was the last time you've loved your spouse? a family member, a friend, a significant other in a way that it felt like death. Like you had to kill a part of you. You had to kill or confront an idol. I mean, the issue is if you're like me, oftentimes we don't even think um, of what our idols are. at least not consciously we don't think about them. And the reason we don't love that way is we we don't actually even, we're not even really aware of what our idols are. And the thing that helped me is I, I, said, I said, David, think about what usually makes you upset, right, or frustrated, angry, sad, insecure. Because chances are when you have a visceral reaction to something like that, because it's touching on an idol or a part of your identity, it might be separate from Christ. And so I thought of one for myself. It just happened. It's fresh, fresh sin that I'm confessing to you guys. On Friday, my sister called me. Um, And this was an abnormally busy week for me. I don't even know why. Everything just happened this week. I was preparing the sermon. I was meeting with a lot of people. My sister calls me uh, Friday afternoon and says, hey, I'm flying in from Pittsburgh today, and I need to stay at your place tonight. Namaste. Now, it wasn't a huge deal, right? I had a friend... That I was supposed to come over. I had set aside time to finish my sermon, but it really, really bothered me, right? It really, really bothered me. And I just say now, my, one of my idols is control. I like to control my day and control my week and control who I see, my social interaction. I have like to control that. So if you kind of mess up or surprise. I don't like that, you know? It's I literally had a visceral reaction to her calling me last minute, being like, I'm going to show up tonight. You know what I'm saying? And I knew in that moment I had two choices. I could call her, be like, that's totally fine. Come, I would love to have you, oh, sister of mine, right? Or I could do what I did, just call and say, yeah, that's fine. Just so you know, I had a friend that was going to come over tonight. And, you know, like, couldn't you give me a warning, like, before today? And, like, you know, did this and that. And I was throwing in little, like, and I was, like, joking, Right? That's how I justify it. But, but I knew what I was doing. I wanted her to feel a little guilty, right? I wanted her to keep it in the back of her mind so next time I can keep my idol of control. And it's an innocuous one, but I have much worse ones than that. I can think of so many times where I've been uh, uh, discussing or arguing with somebody and it would have been very easy for me to lay down my opinion conceive what I wanted to say and say let's do it your way just keep my mouth shut or, or say something that would help move the conversation along but instead of what my idols be right my idols be prideful my whatever my idol is rears this ugly head and I do not love in the way I could have the many times I had time and money I could have given to somebody in need my idol uh self-sufficiency or financial security would rear its head, As I would not lay down my life under someone else's. And I have to be clear, these seem like little things, but we do them all the time, and at some point, it's not so little if it's the pattern of our life. But we do it because to not, to shut our mouths, or to give, or to serve, it feels like debt. Like it hurts and it pains you to lay your life truly under someone else's, especially when it's with an idol you have. We can do it with things that are easy for, oh yeah, there's some things I can do, it's easy to love, but if it's an idol, no, it's death to me. And those are the very things that God is calling for us to kill in ourselves to love others to identify those things, and to purposely find ways to love in those things, to confront them, to die. And it'll hurt, and it won't be easy to come back from. But that's the point. That's how Christ loved us. So that's the standard. An interesting thing happens, though. Peter says, where are you going? Why can't I come? Right? He says, I'm, I'm actually ready, Jesus, to lay down my life for you. He says in the passage. And what does Jesus say? Will you lay down your life for me, Peter? Because, in fact, you're going to have a chance to, and instead you're going to deny me three times. What's Jesus saying? You think you're ready to follow this command you're not ready. You're not able. I'll never forget the first sermon I actually ever heard at this church. It was my sophomore year at Wheaton, the fall of 2012. I think it was like three or four months after the church had been planted. We were meeting uh, in a small building on the uh, near west side of Chicago. We used to meet on Saturday evenings at the time. We would go Uh, from Wheaton, and then we would come back, and we would go to Chick-fil-A afterwards, because it's kind of like Jesus food, you know what I'm saying, and then we'd go back to our dorms. So I went the first time with some friends, and I'll never forget the sermon. It was on the passage in Revelation. It says how every nation and tribe and tongue were going to worship God together, and the point of the sermon was that that wasn't a prediction. It was a promise, that God was going to create worshipers. And the key was there was nothing we had to do. That he didn't want our efforts, he wanted our hearts. And I was so moved by it because it was so different than what I had heard my whole life growing up in church. I've heard many sermons before about things not to do, and things to do, right? Sermons or teachings kind of like this one. I'm giving you what to do, to love the way Jesus loved. But I want to say to you something I wish that they would have said to me. The same thing that Jesus says to Peter. You cannot do it. It is impossible in your own strength to live up to this standard. I love teaching the commands, the laws, the word of God, but only if it comes with this reminder. You can't do it. You can't fulfill it. That's the point. You are like Peter. We we are competent people. Peter was competent. We're used to being able to strategize. I'll I'll think of my idols. I'll think of the people I need to love better. I'll create a strategy to do it. Peter failed. We will fail too. That is the point. Paul says, why did God give the law? Partly so it exposes us and shows us we can't keep the law. That's the gospel. That's the reason Jesus had to die on the cross. And so what do we see? Peter fails. He denies Jesus three times like he predicted. But then not even a year later, something crazy happens. This same Peter who denies Jesus in front of servants is going to stand in front of the Sanhedrin, powerful religious authorities and powerful Roman authorities and proclaim Christ so boldly, he gets killed for it. He lays down his life for it. Something happens to Peter where he's like us. He cannot reach this standard, but then suddenly is empowered to live the very call that Christ had called him to live. Something changes. Something happens. John Piper says it's, it's a miracle. It is supernatural. It's not a part of our natural ability. Something changes for Peter. And I'll give you a hint. It has nothing to do with his competency, it has everything to do with his faith. I'm going to call the band up now. In a lot of ways, um, we're going to talk much more about this next week. I'm kind of setting it up. But what what we do if we cannot live up to the standard, to love like Christ, love to lay down our life for others. And I'll say this real quickly as a precursor. I think sometimes uh, our struggles as Christians is we don't know what to do after we're saved. After we're saved, right? After we say our prayer of faith after we, you know, declare we want to give our lives to Christ, we don't know what to do. How do we follow the commands of God? And oftentimes what we do is we actually treat faith as like a one-time only tool. Faith is good for our salvation. But when it comes to sanctification, now it's up to us to work and give effort. I want to say this. If it's true that through faith you were born again, then what if we treated it like a birthday? Something you revisited time after time again. What if faith wasn't a thing that just happened in the past, that Christ saved you? What if Christ continues to save you? What if faith wasn't just for your justification? What if faith was also for your sanctification? What if the point of all this is that there's still a power of God that you have to rely on to be faithful to Him even after you've given your life to Him. Would that change how we live our lives? Would that change how we receive commands and laws that we read in the Bible? Is a pressure no longer for us to figure out a way to do things or not do certain things but to figure out a way to tap into the power of God so that we're transformed to live the life he's calling us to do. Maybe that's the gospel. Both for us being saved and for us being faithful. My homework for you guys this week is a little different than maybe um, you would think it would be. It's not for you to go out now and be like, how can I lay down my life for others and to just do that? I mean, I want you to try. Think of your idols. Think of the people you want to love. Go for it. My homework for you actually is to fail. To think of all the times you tried doing it and you couldn't. All the times your idols actually won. All the times you didn't choose death in love, I want you to be acutely aware of those times and of that weakness. And then, rather than from that place feeling bad about yourself and creating a new strategy to fix it, repent and go to your father and confess to him I cannot live up to this standard. I want to be a part of the team, but I I can't do it on my own. And see if your faith will lead to power for God to teach you how to lay down your life like he did his. If you're comfortable, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads for a time of prayer. Christ has raised a standard for what it means to be called his disciple. I love it. It's kind of like what Abe said last week. There's not just humility. Christian humility is different. It's a different call. It's a different goal. I want you to pray uh, if you're comfortable that God will make it clear how holy He is, how high that standard is. He would bring to your mind the idols you have, the people you failed to die to love. He would reveal to your heart how much you need Him. Because then maybe we would honestly actually believe that He's our Savior not just one time, but forever. Let's come to our Father now.